Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for books dropping on June 15th, 2021. Kind of a smaller week, which is good. I Finally? Think, yes. Yeah. I think last week we didn't even get a chance to talk about the DC Pride book because it was such a huge uh, episode, uh, you know, issue all to itself. And we'd already gone over two and a half hours. So, so don't worry. We are going to do a special spotlight uh, just on DC Pride. Probably be out. Uh, maybe Wednesday or Thursday of this week. So uh, keep your eyes out for that. Uh, also, similarly, uh, at some point, we'll probably Rocky and I will probably get together and talk about Far Sector as a whole series as well because we didn't talk about the end of that series because uh, I think we're both behind on it. But I do want to talk about it because Joel Mullen is very much a going to be a big part of DC going forward, Infinite Frontier. She's already a big part of... Jeffrey Thorne's Green Lantern book. Uh, I think she's supposed to be in the Green Lantern cartoon that's coming up. So she's def they're definitely raising her profile. So I want to I want I want to read Far Sector beyond the first three issues, which is all I've read. So I'll sit down and read it all in one sitting, and then uh, Rocky and I will probably talk about it. So uh, beyond that, I mean, I don't really know that there's any kind of general news going on. Um, it seems like. DC has sort of righted the ship. We've, we've talked about it on over the course of the past few weeks, how, uh, you know, we don't have sales numbers, unfortunately, so we can't really put, uh, you know, any sort of hard concrete facts on it. But just based on what I see on social media and people talking, it's, and, and what I hear from retailers, it, it seems like the low point of future state has, has passed. However, I will say that a lot of these books are still heading toward that possible future of future states. So you kind of wonder, DC yeah. playing chicken, you know, are they going to veer off at the last second? Um, specifically, I guess we'll talk about it a little bit when we get to Catwoman this week, which was, uh, which was pretty solid. But uh, anyway, let's go ahead and dive into the books. Because, um, yeah, I thought it was a pretty good week. There's a couple pretty good number ones here, Rocky. I don't know what it and a big spoiler in Nightwing. I'll warn everybody right now. <laughs> and it's one of those things, you know, um, we got these books like a while early. You know, most of the time we get the books on at least by the Friday before they're released. Barring any technical difficulties like we had a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. But sometimes we get them, you know, well in advance. And this is one of those situations. And it's kind of tough because there are certain people that get the preview copies that aren't they don't necessarily think about the fact that we don't want these things spoiled everything's supposed to be embargoed but you know if you turn around and send and i'll specifically call them out because they're the ones that ruin everything i feel like bleeding cool right if you send you read something in a, in a comic that you got you know two weeks before street date and you send rich johnson an email at bleeding cool and go hey guess what dc's doing they don't care. They're going to put it right out on their web. Now, they don't get preview copies. DC's not stupid enough to give Rich Johnson or anybody at Bleeding Cool preview copies because they spoil things, and they don't care. They're just about getting clicks for their website. So I even saw Tom Taylor on, I think, last Thursday was already saying something like, man, it's it really sucks when you build up to something. And he hasn't been on the book that long, but it really sucks when you build up to something and you want it to have a big impact in the book. And it gets spoiled for people before they even have a chance to read it, right? Like yeah. we all understand the risks if you're on social media or you're on a certain, um, you know, corner of the internet 
and you haven't read something that's already been released, right? Like if you if you don't go see a movie on the opening weekend and you're cruising, you know, the internet on the following Wednesday, if something gets spoiled for you, yeah, it sucks, but you know, you took the chance because you're out there on the internet and you didn't go see it as soon as you could. That's not the case here, right? Night, Nightwing, as much as people want to read it the first day, they, it it's not, hasn't even been released yet. These are just preview copies where people have read what's happening and they've reached out and Bleeding Cool's already written an article about it yeah. nearly a week before the book comes out. It's kind of a bro code you got to follow there in terms of spoilers yeah. and uh... You know, I'd, I'd be lying if every now and then I don't slip up myself back back in the day when I would get review copies. And, uh, you know, I always feel bad when, when I end up, when I screw it up. Screw up and uh, But I, I generally don't do it intentionally. And uh, we always try to give spoiler warnings. So it is what it is. But, you know, it's in this day and age, it's kind of hard to avoid at times. And, you know, but I think for the most part, I think most of us try to adhere to the sort of like, we don't, we don't release these things until... You know, until midnight on the on on the Tuesday or the Wednesday, whatever the case might be. So, you know. Yeah, and and the and the fact is that everybody who watches this show or listens to the podcast knows on our DC spotlights, we do spoilers. So if you choose to listen to it or watch it before you've read the books, hey, that's on you, right? Like, we <laughs> yeah. we we tried to do it on Friday. Surprise! We, 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 yeah, we tried to do it on the Friday, and you all reached out and said, "No, we want it on Tuesday." Uh, so, we're, and we're happy to do that. We're happy to put it out on the day it comes out and talk in depth on these stories. We love DC Comics. We love hearing from what all you guys think. But again, that's that's different. We adhere to it uh, to that embargo date uh, of not releasing it until the day the book is in comic shops. Um, but unfortunately it only takes one person. It only takes one person to reach out to Rich Johnston or put it out on social media to, to kind of ruin things. And it, and it's disappointing. And the other thing it does is it drives the, you know, the speculators crazy. And like, it wasn't like Nightwing number 78 was, uh, was like a cheap, it would already was, would, was going for over cover on eBay. But if you go look there right now, yeah, prices are through the roof because um, I was curious about it. So anyway, we'll get to Nightwing in a minute. Uh, we're actually going to talk about uh, Flash number 771 first. Uh, so this is written by Jeremy Adams, and it's the uh, the blink of an eye, chapter four. Wally West has been jumping through the speed force because of this surge of the speed force where Wally's been jumping into various speedsters. So what's cool is we have a ton of artists here, and each of them depicts a different era right so brandon peterson handles the art when we're in present time with uh, oliver queen and barry allen and and mr terrific um but when you're talking about and and what we find out here is that wally's not only jumping through different time eras but he's jumping through kind of different omniverse different omniverse versions of the dc universe um and so really the sky's the limit and we even get at the beginning, which we got teased at the end of last issue, the Omniverse version of Challenge of the Super Friends, right? Which was one of my favorite cartoons oh, growing it's up. Awesome. Uh, it's awesome. It was awesome. Yeah, just used with the Legion of Doom. And it was amazing. It was amazing. I love that cartoon. I have the like the intro uh with the guy talking with the super deep voice. I have that on my phone as like a ringtone. And yeah, it was it was huge. Anyway, Kevin McGuire draws that one. Uh we have Howard Porter drawing a different era. Barat 
I'm probably mispronouncing this, but Barat Pegmizki draws another sequence. Brian Hitch does one. Max Rayner does one. Scott Collins does one. Tom Derenick, Fernando Passerin, and Eau Claire Albert. So a ton of artists working on this book, all drawing different eras as Wally's hopping around. And we talked about it before, you know, leaping around from place to place, hoping each time the next leap will be the leap home, if that sounds familiar to, to any of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, Michael Atea does the colors and Steve Wands does the letters. So, yeah, I, I thought this was a really great issue. I do, I, I do still have kind of the little weird thing about Brandon Peterson's art, about why he outlines all his uh, characters in, in a, a color. I don't – I st still don't understand that. But I thought the rest of the issue was great. What's interesting, Jeremy Adams throughout the story does a really good job of giving each of these eras a distinctive voice. Like these, these characters do very much sound like their counterparts from the Challenge of the Super Friends, especially L Luther. And when the Scarecrow talks, it's, his S's are very drawn out, which is very much uh, just how it was in, in the cartoon. Uh, a couple of the sequences – like the old West, it's, it's literally, literally one panel with Max Mer Mercury. Um, and then there's another one at Titans Academy, which, you know, that's great that they're tying it into, you know, other stories other, that are going on around. Even if it is just one panel, we get one where he jumps into the body of Liberty Bell and he's looking, you know, when, this is the one that Brian Hitch draws. Um, and <laughs> when he sees himself, he's male but I wonder, is that as how he sees himself as everybody else? So going back to the whole quantum leap thing. Yeah, I, I was a little confused by that, to be honest, because if he's yeah. jumping into her body, he shouldn't look like himself. So I don't get that. Yeah, but I, I, it, it may be that he's only perceiving him as himself, or it's just to let us know. Because just like in Quantum Leap, whenever Scott Bakula would look in the mirror, he would he would see who whatever body he was in. But when we were looking at him on the screen, he looked like Scott Bakula. So it might be something yeah. similar. Maybe, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the the next one, I wasn't real sure who that I, – I do remember that little wizard from some era of the Flash, but I wasn't 100% sure. Um, yeah. But when they get to the future, when they get to uh, San Francisco with Jay and with uh, Iris, the, the twins, you know, while he's in the future, he's jumped into the body of his son. It's a very heartfelt moment that the – uh, that the father and daughter share. Uh, and I thought it was great. I, I thought it really leaned in. Jeremy Adams is really leaning into what makes Wally West so beloved and why so many people feel that he's their flash because he really has become kind of the, um, the emotional center of the flash family, you know, and really you could make the argument. He's the emotional center of the DC universe, which is why when, uh, when Rebirth happened and Wally West returned, you know, that that uh, DC Rebirth special that Jeff Johns wrote, there were people talking about literally being in tears reading it. Um, I got a little choked up. I don't know that I teared up necessarily, but it was a pretty emotionally impactful uh, moment. And so we get that here with Wally uh, talking to his daughter. You know, she's all grown up. He gets the glimpse. And what a cool thing. Like, I'd love to get a glimpse at what my daughter would be like and uh, life would be like in 20 years from now, you know, just, just so in case anything was wrong, I could try to fix it now or, or maybe even appreciate more, you know, the time that I have with her now. Uh, but at the end, um, there's a really interesting place where Wally ends up. He jumps back into himself in 
the midst of the events of Heroes in Crisis. So, you know, I, I don't know if Tom King knows about this. Uh, I don't know how he would feel about it if he did know about it. Um, I don't care what Tom King thinks about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm sure you don't, but I would be I would be curious to know. Um, but we did hear some, uh, some hints. We did get some, um, I don't know if it was in the solicits or if it was in um, interviews I read, but, but I remember hearing something or reading something about uh, this flat when flash returned after uh, future state that it was going to be the story of Wally West and maybe the redemption of, of Wally West. So this might be where that's all leading and maybe this will satisfy a lot of Wally West fans and a lot of DC fans who couldn't stand heroes in crisis and didn't like, what was done to uh, to Wally there. And we don't even have to wait a full month for it because uh, apparently the story is going to continue in two weeks in the Flash 2021 annual. So uh, I'm curious. I'm looking forward to it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm such a huge fan of Heroes in Crisis that I think that they shouldn't change the story. I'm not one of those that hates Heroes in Crisis, but I also don't think that it's, it's so great that it shouldn't be changed. Uh, feelings about it i i appreciate what tom king was trying to do and i understand it maybe better than a lot of people but that's probably because i've read heroes in crisis many 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 times um like every time an issue came out i reread the whole series plus i've reread the whole thing in one sitting a couple times since then so you know issue one i've read upwards of 10 times because you know, issue one came out, I read it. And then when issue two came out, I went back and read issue one and then issue two and then so on and so forth. So when issue, the last issue came out, I went back and reread the whole thing. And I've, like I said, I've reread it since then. I've, I've analyzed it. I've looked at it many, many different ways. Um, and I've gotten a lot out of it. But again, I understand where people are coming from that didn't like it. And so um, it gives more credence to that cover, which I honestly didn't pay that much attention to uh, when I first you know, started looking at the, the book, I'm like, Oh, welcome to sanctuary here. I just, I saw kind of the, because when you get the digital copy and it's zoomed in on your screen, you only see about half the cover. And I just kind of, you know, scrolled right by the bottom half of the cover and didn't realize until later. Um, when I went back and looked at it more closely, I'm like, wait, welcome to sanctuary. Is this what they mean? Or is this what they meant when they talked about, Hey, um, it, it could be the redemption of, uh, of Wally West. And plus, if you look at the variant cover by Brett Booth, it's Wally and, and Arsenal um, in all different uh, iterations uh, when he was speedy, even in one of them. Uh, and he appears nowhere in this book. So why would you bother putting him in here? Oh, maybe it's foreshadowing. He's going to go back and not kill Roy Harper. But then how does that gel with what we saw in Infinite Frontier or Roy Harper was back? I mean, it's time travel. So who knows? But pretty interesting and uh, i'm sure rocky feels the exact opposite of me about uh, uh heroes in crisis and and would love to have it erased from existence but uh anyway i thought it was a solid issue and it, it definitely uh as it starts off kind of lighthearted and fun with the legion of doom sequence and then it it sort of gets more serious as it goes along more emotional as it goes along with him uh with wally running into his daughter and then obviously the you know, showing up at sanctuary at the end. So uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Did you, uh, did you like the fact that it's kind of very obvious we're going to get a, an adjustment to that heroes in crisis story? 
yeah, no, uh, I actually didn't, I didn't mind Heroes in Crisis from, uh, I thought emotionally Heroes in Crisis when, when Wally West uh, lost, you know, he lost his mind a little bit and I, I, it actually resonated with me a little bit. I, I thought it had some emotional gravitas to it, but I just wish it was a different character other than Wally West. So I thought Tom King did a good job maybe getting into a, a particular hero's emotion, but Wally West was the wrong character to, to, to be put in that position. But in any event, I think a lot of people are going to look at this cover and buy this issue thinking that this is going to be, uh, this cover is, is improper for this issue. This is not, this should be, ne this is next issue story. So I don't know why they're having Wally West, uh, you know, or I guess Barry, you know, on this cover, you know, welcome to Sanctuary where heroes come to heal. This never happens in this issue. So this, I think, is an editorial screw-up. Uh, either that or, I mean, I can't, I don't know what the cover looks like for the next issue, but none of this happens in this issue. This issue ends with Wally ending up in the same spot he was in Heroes in Crisis after just having uh, accidentally killed everyone at the Sanctuary. And I say accidentally Kind of, because it was revealed by Joshua Williamson's, one of his final Flash stories was that apparently it was the reverse Flash, whatever that was influencing super hypnotically through the Speed Force, Wally West's mind. And so it, they, they, they tried to say it wasn't Wally's fault, but now that's not enough of a redemption and they they had the the they had then they had the they tried to redeem him with death metal and then they now they're going to try to redeem him again so i i don't know how many different shots at redemption Wally West is going to have personally i don't feel we need another redemption i i thought that omniverse kind of erased this erased this nonsense crap anyway so who cares but uh in any event you you nail you hit the nail on the head when you spoke earlier about uh about the talking to his children when he when he talked to uh, Ivy or I guess Irie Irie is her name uh, his daughter Irie she's an old she, she's an older Flash she's got a connection to the Speed Force she's there for him she's and she she's explaining to him she's preparing him for what's to come she's saying you're gonna have a difficulty with this next part Dad you're gonna have difficulty where you're gonna go next uh, when you jump next but you're gonna get through it and everything's gonna be okay and I'll see you in the future. And that's basically what, uh, that's ba basically what we have. And, you know, I, you know, overall, I, I thought it worked okay. I, um, I want to give a compliment to Jeremy Adams here, just to back up a bit. Sir, I'm just collecting my thoughts. I absolutely love the Super Friends here. Last, last issue we got, like what an issue that I felt like was the All-Star Squadron. We, we got, I love the idea of Flash jumping in a different different speedsters throughout history. This is so much fun. My favorite characters here, like this is like watching an old Super Friends cartoon. I mean, it's so much fun. Lex Luthor's character here is hilarious. He's jealous of the reverse of Wall of Wally, basically. Well, the reverse flash. Wally West jumps into the body of the reverse flash and reverse flash is, they thought that reverse flash killed Superman with this lightning because he, of course he, he, he flashed in with the lightning bolt as he's jumping from body to body to different speedsters. And it ends up hitting Superman in this particular, uh, on this particular earth. And it's hilarious. And Kevin Maguire, of course, of course, of, of justice league, you know, justice league fame with the a classic Keith Giffen run. He's so great at expressions and he, Kevin Maguire is the perfect person to illustrate 
the you know to illustrate that those interactions b- between the members of the legions of, of doom and just the, the battle that takes place uh, between uh, Lex Luthor and Superman and of course Wally in the body of Reverse Flash trying to get you know trying to save Superman and then at the same time trying to trying to get into the right location trying to get the the speed force energies which have been built up into Superman he's got to get Lex Luthor to shoot him again with the rays <laughs> in order to prevent Superman from exploding with all that extra speed force energy and the and the, the big plot point here is that the speed force needs to regurgitate the real problem is that the speed force has nothing's infecting the nothing from the outside is infecting the speed force the speed force has almost like has an internal uh it's like it's choking or something they they i think i think it was mr terrific that said they got to give the speed force a heimlich the heimlich maneuver they got to yeah. they got to they got to burp something out of the speed force in order to to fix it and that's what they're desperately going to be trying to do and in any event this this issue was a lot of fun and this is most of the time in most issues if you get a a bunch of artists it doesn't work very well but this is exactly the type of story where having more than one artist is perfect because you are jumping into different incarnations of the characters different timelines and it it's almost you're almost getting the bonus of having more than one comic book at uh at, at once and it, it it frankly i think it works really well and um uh, it works really well. Just and I got to give full credit to uh, Jeremy Adams and just another. I'm I'm so much enjoying this Flash run. His explanation of the Speed Force and it's he, he dumbs it down. He, even using the analogy of the Heimlich maneuver, I really appreciated and the emotional connection between uh, a Wally and his future daughter. And they're talking about they they've referenced some of the who Jay his son gets into a relationship with, which is of course. Uh, <laughs> the gold beetle <laughs> yeah <laughs> that time traveler who g- gave him a headache in the previous issue so it's a good callback to earlier issues and a good callback in the future state a, a future state character that we met all in all things this is a, this was a fun issue so yeah i full props i gotta i'd give this one a, a solid seven and a half out of ten yeah and i i get what you're saying about the uh, the cover, but we know covers a lot of times now rarely have to do with what's inside the issue. So I don't begrudge them. I mean, it, it does tie into the final page. I mean, on the final page, he does go back to uh, Heroes in Crisis. And, uh, you know, if it gets people to give it a chance, uh, I, I'm okay with it. Um, but I do I, I do agree with you. It doesn't have that much to do with the story. But then nowadays, what covers do? Yeah. Um, I one thing neither one of us mentioned. So, And I think it has been talked about before. Uh, but I haven't read, you know, the entire Wally West run of the Flash when you know he had the twins with Linda and, and whatnot. But uh, Iris West or Irie uh, does mention again here about her connection to Speed Force and how maybe she has the strongest connection of anybody. We know Wally has the strongest connection, sort of, of any of the current Speedsters. But it's hinted at that um, that I, the future Iris West, uh, not you know Barry Allen's Iris, but Wally's daughter Iris, one of the two twins is basically the has the strongest connection and maybe is the most powerful speedster. Uh, and that's kind of hinted at again here. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. Great job on art, Michael Atea on colors. Um, despite the fact that we have different artists with very different styles, it does work uh, because it is jumping around in different eras. Like uh, 
like Rocky said, but you do have the consistency of the the color artist to hold it all together. So, uh, all right. Well, moving on to the next book, it's Supergirl, uh, Woman of Tomorrow. Uh, this is Tom King's latest project over at DC, and I don't know. I, I heard some people excited about this. Others were kind of meh. Um, but I hope that everybody gives it a chance because I think it is something special. So uh, it's written by Tom King. Bilkus Evely does the art, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Matthias Lopez on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, and I'll give you a chance to go first, Rocky. What did you think of this, uh, this first issue? Uh, well, you know what? You and I, every time we review something from Tom King lately, we're giving him a compliment. And I, I, uh, I got to give him a compliment on this. You know, maybe I could get, we could all get on his butt a little bit for Heroes in Crisis. But I mean, I've been, you know, we're enjoying his Rorschach. We're enjoying his Adam Strange. <laughs> I mean, and this Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, this opening issue, uh, man, I love the art. Bill Chris Everly does it's just an amazing job. And I really, really enjoy, even this alternate cover here, uh, Gary uh, Frank, just, it's gorgeous. I really like, I like the simplicity of this. I like this, even the opening narration in this issue, it's being narrated essentially by, by actually the, the, the young girl, a young girl whose father is murdered. And this young girl essentially, uh, wants to, she's on this, we start off in almost like a, it's like a, think of Conan the Barbarian, like we're on a, on a barbaric world that's surrounded by a red sun. And this, this young girl is looking for a warrior that she can hire by giving him this sword in order to uh, avenge the death of her father who's been killed uh, uh, by, by this particular uh, individual. And this young woman is determined. And, and the, the language in which Tom King narrates this or gives voice to this character is very well done. One, th- one thing about Tom King is that he, you know, uh, he, he is good at that. What, he is good, and often, often, sometimes, often Tom King will borrow uh, from other authors and other works of art. But here he uses his own words, and he should more often because he does it very well here. And you know, he this this young girl, this young woman, she she wants to she goes into town to try to hire somebody to hire to avenge the death of her father. And she ends up wandering into this, she ends up wandering into this tavern and she talks to this Conan the Barbarian type of character who is uh, prepared to take as his reward once he kills this person who murdered her father. He'll keep the sword, but he's very arrogant, very, he's very chauvinistic toward her. And he even slaps this young woman when she gets a little bit too lippy with him, and uh, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, uh, in terms of the way that she wants to get it, uh, you know, she, they, they don't come to perfect terms, but he decides he's going to rewrite the terms of the deal. And there's, you see this blonde in the corner and it's this drunken Supergirl. Uh, dr- <laughs> While well, we readers know it's Supergirl uh, right away. And right away you're wondering as the reader, why is Supergirl here? 
And you know why? Why? And is she? How can she be drunk? And of course, we you, you discover that Kara is all. You know, she's there. It's her twenty first birthday, and so she's going to a planet with a yellow, with a red sun, so she can get drunk because she's on a planet with a yellow sun. She's you know, of course, Kryptonian. She's not going to be able to get drunk, so she's just going to get drunk. And she's by herself. It's kind of depressing and pathetic, really. But she's twenty one years old. She's a little depressed. But she's she's even in a drunken state. She can she's not going to sit idly back while this girl is is uh, essentially uh, robbed by this uh, by this uh, Conan type of character. And it's uh, it's quite good. Beverly uh, Bill Cross Beverly does a great job illustrating uh, Supergirl taking this guy out. <laughs> And just just beautiful scenes. I mean, I would I would kill to own some of this the original art here. Just absolutely gorgeous art. There's one scene, a full page spread with Supergirl holding two swords, uh, and one to the Conan like character on the ground, and as and you know she certainly doesn't appear drunk, but she ends up passing out. Uh, and this this young woman who uh, she ends up passing out. This young woman helps her. Uh, Kara wakes up, and Ultimately, they end up at the end being Carl just wants to leave the planet. She's kind of all depressed. She was just there for the twenty-first birthday, and where 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 this story really works for me is right away. You you Tom King is getting into the head of Supergirl. Supergirl just wants to leave, and it's clear that Supergirl is there because she's depressed. She's trying to escape something. She's trying to escape the thoughts of her. Uh, of her past, of her, of her upbringing, of, and the, it might seem a little bit tropey, and maybe it might seem obvious to some readers, but I really like how Tom King utilizes the experience of this young woman who loses her father, and this young woman is, is so adamant that she wants Supergirl, she wants Kara to revenge her father, she wants to hire Kara, you take my sword, and she, Kara doesn't want to do that, but but this young woman is about, young girl is about uh, avenge and revenge. And she, you don't understand. I've lost everything. And the most poignant scene in the, in the, scene, in the, in the whole, is, what made the comic for me is, is this young woman says, all that flighty talk of compassion and fury. That's dandy. If you're living on ground, you know, we'll stand solid. But I lost my world, she says to Kara. And that, that's what brought the story for me is that, yeah, this, for this young woman, when she lost her dad, she lost her world. And those were words that really impacted on Kara because she also lost her world. And who was there for her? No one was. Kara lost her world too. And, and Kara went to this world to escape, to get drunk and escape all her problems. And a lot, one of her problems is not really dealing with the loss of her world. And, um, it, this just really resonated, and you could tell it had an impact on Kara. And as this happens, they get attacked by this uh, by this Conan, the character, looking for revenge. And it's a semi-successful attack because, again, it's a planet with a red sun. And ultimately, uh, well, it it ends in such a way that Kara is on this planet now. I, I believe stranded at least for the time being, and she's going to help this young girl avenge her father's death and this really worked for me i've talked long enough uh jace i i don't know man are you as impressed am i as i was with this or 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 what 
Yeah, so I, I like what you said right at the beginning there. You talked about the simplicity of the story, uh, and I think that's why it works so well. Uh, because, yeah, there's the obvious – there's kind of the obvious sort of uh, uh, story beat here or, or plot point where Kara sees herself in this little girl, right? Like, you're right. She does say, you know, I've lost my father. I've lost my whole world. And, and the insinuation being that uh, that Kara doesn't understand, right? Because Kara tells her that when she tries to beg off. Hey, where I come from, my job, I have a lot of responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities is I don't kill you know, I, I, I understand your anger and it's hard to lose somebody. You have to look for justice, not vengeance. You, you have to look for compassion, not fury. I mean, those are all things that, that Kara herself has strived to exhibit in her own life, right? Um, don't be angry. Be compassionate. Look for justice, not vengeance. I mean, Kara could be talking to herself uh, because of everything she's lost, right? We know Kara has a great capacity for anger. Just look at the fact that she was a Red Lantern, was the be- was the leader of the Red Lanterns for a little while, um, and so when she tells this to uh, to Ruth Marie Knoll, and Ruth's uh, response is, "You understand? You don't understand a damn thing." And it's great the panel that uh, that Bilquis Eveli gives us there as Supergirl's kind of looking down in a way because she's trying to keep her emotions in check because she does understand, uh, you know. Uh, Ruth is saying, I've lost my whole world. Metaphorically, uh, Kara has actually lost her whole world. She's actually lost everybody, not just her father, but her mother uh, and everybody that she ever cared about, uh, with the exception, obviously, of her young cousin who was, you know, just a babe at the time. And and she wouldn't have had a relationship, (laughs) you know, to speak of with him. Um, So, again, it's it's very obvious and it's very simple in its um, in its conception to see that, that Kara is really getting a chance to talk to her younger self and help steer her younger self so that maybe Ruth doesn't end up in the same, doesn't end up making the same mistakes that Supergirl has made with, uh, you know, with her anger and, and those types of things. Um, and even though it's a, a simple idea and concept, it's executed very, very well. There's just little things that m- make the story jump off the page. Uh, yes, Kara, go- it is very depressing when you think about it. Kara going to uh, a planet with a red sun so she can get drunk on her 21st birthday and drown her memories uh, because it, it is a milestone in, in in Kryptonian time. It is a milestone uh, as an earthling, you know, turning 21. Um, and she doesn't have those that she first loved. You know, she doesn't have those people that she first grew up with, that her first family to celebrate with. But you know, in passing such a milestone in her life, she can't, her thoughts can't help but turn that way. So, you know, she just wants to be left in peace. Uh, but like you said, Rocky, she's a hero and she's not going to stand by while this girl is, is taken advantage of. So it's, it's a simple idea, but it's executed extremely well. Uh, the other thing that is done very well is like you said, the narration that we get from, uh, from Ruth Marie, she does talk in almost a very sort of proper English, I guess you'd say, um, which is very interesting because it, it's very much juxtaposed against the fact that even um, on this planet, this barbaric world, she she's rural, right? She's she supposedly doesn't know much, and she's not sophisticated. She grew up on a rock farm, you know. Like, does that mean they literally farm rocks? Because that's certainly what it sounds like. Um, 
but that's all sort of turned on its head when you hear her actually talk. She speaks very well. Um, and so that's interesting that Tom King chooses to kind of use her language to give us this idea that she's uh, maybe much smarter than the average uh, rural person on this world. I guess certainly, certainly a bit more sophisticated and self-aware than her, her brothers, right? Because we get that whole scene about after her father is first killed, she uh, is there at the, the dinner table, the family dinner table with all her, I think she has six or seven brothers, and they're all speaking of vengeance and going after this chem of the yellow hills. And um, and eventually they, it's all bluster, right? They sort of talk themselves out. They get all their anger and frustration out just amongst the talk and because they realize they kind of don't have power um, to really do anything. And, and if they try to, they're going to end up the same way their father uh, did, namely dead, if they speak out against the king. There's an insinuation that maybe um, their father at some point had spoken out against the king. Um, so, you know, ultimately they decided we're, we're just going to leave it in the hands of, of their God um, to, to make it. I can't remember exactly what they refer to it as, but they're going to leave it in the hands of some greater deity. Um, and that will be where the, the justice comes from. Uh, and oh, the divine, that's the word they use. We're going to leave it to the divine where as Ruth Marie is much more practical, you know, she's like, well, that's all well and good, but I don't know that the divine exists and I'm going to go take it upon myself um, to, to take this sword that Kim used to kill my father. Um, and there's some interesting introspection there uh, from, from Ruth Marie Noel about why Kim left. So he stabs her father with the sword, but leaves the sword in her father. Uh, why wouldn't he take it? Especially because that's what she's going to use to pay whoever's going to take the bounty because it's so intricately carved and um, clearly worth something, which is why the other uh, Conan type character tries to steal it from her. So there's a lot of little things here that hint at a grander story, not least of which is right from the beginning, right on the first page where, where I was hooked anyway, with the narration of, uh, of uh, Ruth Marie Knoll and the, the pictures we get, it's, it's, we're seen in silhouette, uh, this Kim of the Yellow Hills kill her father, um, or Creme of the Yellow Hills. And, um, and what's interesting is during this narration, we're, we're being told things about Supergirl that you're like, wait, what? What did you say? Supergirl delivered the fatal blow and Krem fell dead to the ground. Oh wait, I'm telling the story in the in the wrong in the wrong way, right? Let me let me. Uh, I'm getting ahead of. I'm writing ahead of myself as I tend to do, but should not. <clears throat> so right away, like right from the start, um, it's actually the second page where we get that narration from um, from Ruth, and you're like, wait, Supergirl's going to kill somebody because she goes on and on at the end of the book. Uh, or, or toward the end of the story about, hey, I don't kill. And, of course, we know that Supergirl doesn't kill. But but would she? Would she? Like, does she see so much of herself in this little girl that she would make that choice? It certainly seems so. So how are we going to get there? Um, yeah. So, so interesting. So I, I, I loved it. Specifically, I think my favorite thing about it is the voice that Tom King, the, the vocabulary, uh, which in turn um, informs the voice of Ruth Marie, uh, Mary Knoll. Um, I'm not sure if it's Marie or Mary. It's M-A-R-Y-E. So <laughs> could be, could be, could go either way. Uh, 
Yeah, but I'm not yeah. going to attempt it. Yeah. Pronunciation, sir. <laughs> yeah, maybe Tom will reach out and and uh, just say and correct us. Yeah, <laughs> but I yeah I thought it was spectacular. The art is amazing. Um, you know, this is this is a a science fiction story, right? It's set in space. It's Supergirl. That is certainly science fiction, but this world is is much more fantasy. So it's kind of a mashup between the two, and the art style that Bilquis Evely exhibits. Her, her art style is perfect to tell this sort of story, um, this hybrid fantasy sci-fi story um, that very much may redefine Supergirl for us. Uh, I wonder how much this might take Supergirl in the direction of uh, the dreaded future state. I mean, that future state, Kara, was it Kara Zor-El Superwoman, was one of the worst ones I felt. It just didn't click for me. So well, it was boring. And and one of one of the aspects, the most interesting aspects of Supergirl that has been explored repeatedly is her anger issues. Uh, yep. She was a Red Lantern for a period of time. Her anger issue was one of the central uh, plot points when she was going after Rogel Zara, even during Bendis' run, which was actually one of the better Superman uh, uh, Superman family comic books uh, written by Mark Andreco. The uh, and in fact, it was Supergirl's anger that attracted Rogelzar's axe to her. And that was a very interesting plot element, I thought. And in any event, she, she's always had anger within her. And, and I think that this might be, through Tom King, uh, maybe the best attempt to explore Supergirl's truly coming to terms with that anger, you know, flowing from what she must have witnessed uh, while on... Uh, while on Argo City, as after Krypton exploded, Tom King gave a very interesting interview when he was talking about uh, when he, he his understanding of Supergirl's origin was very informative. And, and, and in Tom King's mind, and he's not wrong, uh, Supergirl witnessed the death of Argo City actually at least two or three times. Because when Argo City, he says when the planet Krypton exploded, a chunk of it, Argo City, remained intact, uh, but it turned into kryptonite. And so Kara's father, father created lead shielding, uh, but it kept it kept it kept uh, uh, wearing down, so that people were slowly dying from radia- kryptonite radiation poisoning. And so she witnessed her world die a few times as they kept trying to prevent the inevitable, until finally she was rocketed away from Argo City by her father to come to Earth. So, so what she witnessed was the destruction of her world in a very slow and torturous way. Uh, at least that's in the mindset of Tom King, and and I actually like that because how what what impact does does that experience have on Supergirl's psyche? And she was unable to save them, and and so it you know, and I think that might be explored as we. I'm sure we're going to get some flashbacks in Supergirl's mind because Tom King is really good at flashbacks. He's got a propensity for that as well. Uh, but when he when he he can he he's very good at it when he nails it as he has at times with uh, Adam Strange and Rorschach. So yeah, the other the other aspect of this is, you know, looking at Supergirl as simply a derivative of Superman, which she kind of was pre-crisis. Um, and, you know, you, you struggle with that. If somebody's so derivative, you struggle with that to make them interesting. And and post-crisis, it, we didn't have a Supergirl, right? Because John Byrne's whole, whole uh, you know, ultimatum, only Superman survived. And we finally got a Supergirl. She was this protoplasmic, whatever. So it wasn't until yeah. Batman Superman that we got the real true um, Supergirl that's been returned to us. And since then, I would argue it's the same kind of thing. Like, how do we make her interesting? How do we make her interesting? And, and that anger is something that has, has come out 
Um, but I still feel like we haven't gotten a definitive idea of who Kara is, you know, post um, post crisis. You know, she's been inconsistent. She's been she's had a lot of different series, a lot of different volumes, and she hasn't been consistent. So, uh, except for that anchor, that that has been probably the most consistent thing about her. Um, and it's probably what, if you remember, she got infected um, during that year of the villain as well. That's right. Um, likely, yeah. likely due to some anger issues. So, uh, yeah, she's not always. She, she's a much, much more maligned character than her her older cousin. Uh, her well, her her younger slash older cousin, <laughs> because of uh, stasis and uh, relativity and whatnot. So. Yeah, I'll be curious to see. Eight issues. I saw some people wondering if it was 12 uh, on social media. Eight issues, and uh, I think Tom King's going to put a pretty good stamp on uh, on Kara here. So, yeah. All right. Up next, we have Nightwing, number 81, the aforementioned, um, written by Tom Taylor. The art is by Bruno Redondo. Uh, let me get to the credits page here. It's probably right at the end. Um, nope. Um, sorry. I'm just looking for the credits here. This is what I, I've complained before about DC not having them in the same place all the time. Adriana Lucas does colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Um, and I'm just going to throw it out there right now. So the big spoiler that we were talking about <laughs> earlier, we saw her first appear in the pages of, uh, of Nightwing 78, Tom Taylor's first, um, first issue Marlene Zuko, who we saw Blockbuster kill. The, she's was deputy mayor or whatnot, and we saw Blockbuster in '78 kill the mayor, and so Marlene Zuko uh, becomes yes. mayor. And in this I issue, think it's we Melinda, see isn't it? Melinda? Melinda, sorry, Melinda. Right, you're right, Melinda Zuko. Um, she gets sworn in as mayor, and then immediately walks into some back room where all the sort of the crime underworld movers and shakers of uh, of Bloodhaven are there. And she seems like, okay, hey, uh, we're going to make this, this city great. We're going to all be wealthy. We're going to extend our power beyond this city. And she, she definitely seems to be not a good person. Um, and she ends up capturing Nightwing at the end. And when Nightwing confronts her saying, you know, I, I know who you are. You're the daughter of Tony Zuko. And, and remember, Tony Zuko is the one that ordered – uh, Dick Grayson's parents killed, so he definitely holds a grudge. And Melinda says, "No, I'm not. I thought I was, but then I learned the truth. I'm actually the daughter of John Grayson. I'm your sister." And of course, we've got Dick Grayson there, shocked, you know, mouth agape. Um, and so that's the big, the big bombshell that Tom Taylor drops here. Um, apparently, he has a sister he never knew about. I I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, like I often do when you introduce something like this, that's, you know, again, we're talking about Dick Grayson. Here's a character that's been around for 80 years <laughs> and it's 80 years later, he finds out he has a long lost sister. That is a long time to go. And again, I guess it's not 80, obviously because Dick Grayson's not 85 years old. It's not 80 real years. Um, you know, in terms of the how long the character has been around, maybe it's only, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, and so that part of it to me is always like, eh, I feel a little, I feel a little iffy about it. But in terms of telling an interesting story, um, 
Yeah, I, I guess it's it's interesting enough. I mean, I, I'm I was certainly surprised. I mean, surprised not surprised because I it you know it did get spoiled for me. Um, but it's an interesting take. Uh, the other part of it where I'm I kind of swing back the other way is though I was like, so is she going to become, you know, is she going to put on a costume? Is she going to become another member of the Bat family? Because God knows there's enough members of the Bat family, and so I kind of feel weird about that as well. Um, but there's potential here for some really cool stories. And I mean, God knows how Dick is going to react. So I guess ultimately, and I did also think maybe this could be just all a, a scam, right? And I'm not saying that Melinda Zuko is trying to run a scam on Dick Grayson. It could be that someone's running a scam on her and she's buying into it specifically to get close to Dick Grayson because they know he's Nightwing. And then it'll turn out in the end, we'll find out, you know, 20 issues from now that she was never really his sister after all. Um, and Tony Zuko found out that Dick was Nightwing or something like, you know, along those lines. Just because she says, I'm your sister, doesn't mean she's actually his sister. Um, so, there, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, and unfortunately... I think that revelation is kind of is going to overshadow that bombshell, that cliffhanger, whatever you want to call it. It's going to overshadow the rest of the issue because um, that's all anybody's going to talk about. But the re I, the rest of the issue is solid. We get Nightwing taking on Heartless for the first time, and he sort of underestimates Heartless, which that might be the first time that I I feel like Tom Taylor didn't get the characterization right of Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson is is a pretty careful hero, and I don't really see him usually make mistakes like underestimating uh, a, a villain like that when he doesn't know anything about him. So I thought that was a little bit out of character, uh, but it's a minor nitpick. I, I thought the fight between Heartless and Nightwing, for the most part, was, was pretty cool. Uh, there's a real emotional moment where Nightwing sort of appeals to um, the other citizens of... Um, of Bloodhaven to come and help these kids that are were caught in the fire. They're they're trapped on a pier because of the fire that Heartless started in their little homeless encampment. And it's really cool that uh, that Tom Taylor gives a shout out to a lot of previous Nightwing uh, comic creators in the names of the ship. Like Devin is responding. That would be Devin Grayson. Uh, the Sealy, which would be Tim Sealy. Uh, Leonardi would be Rick uh, Leonardi. The Jurgens, obviously Dan Jurgens. So they're all coming. The Constant, that would be Andrew Constant. Uh, Fernandez is on the way. That would be Juan Fernandez, the artist who's worked a, a lot on Nightwing. So I thought that was really cool. That was fun. Um, it's Tom Taylor, so of course we get a little bit of humor uh, where uh, Tim Drake is calling their dog Bitewing. And he says, oh, Bitewing, that's pretty good, but actually her name's H Haley. <laughs> and Robin says, oh, you're telling me that people in this room can't have multiple names? And Barbara Gordon chimes in with, I have three, you know, she's Barbara Gordon. She's Oracle. She's Batgirl. So yeah, I thought that it's a, it's a solid issue all around. Um, and the art by Bruno Redondo is as fantastic as ever. Um, but like I said, the, the real, the real takeaway everybody's going to have from this issue is, Oh, that's where Melinda Zuko said, I'm your sister. So uh, that's how it's going to play. Uh, but there's more to unpack than that. I, it, this does make me more interested in in uh, who Heartless is and what his powers might be and what exactly he's after. But that, as much as that 
sort of plot takes up a good half the issue, if not more. Um, the Marley, uh, the Melinda Zuko uh, storyline is really what drives the issue and what everybody will be talking about. So, uh, still a fantastic issue. I'm still really digging Nightwing. I, this, I can easily say this is my favorite, uh, my favorite run of Nightwing ever so far. And we're only what four issues in. Yeah, 78, 79, 80, 81. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fantastic. So, uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, uh, the revelation, uh, the the big revelation that Melinda is uh, not only the uh, that Melinda is not only the mayor, uh, but that she is also the sister. Uh, daughter of Tony Zuko, sister of Dick, long lost sister of Dick Grayson. Wow, she's also. I think Tom King is giving us a little bit of a clue here. She is. She's got an extensive FBI profile, according to Oracle, and it makes me want. A lot of her FBI profile is apparently redacted, so it makes me wonder if maybe she's not also undercover. She also clearly didn't seem to be inclined to want to hurt Dick Grayson. I mean, she's got to know. I don't believe for one moment. I mean, it seems so rehearsed that when she was that at the beginning of the issue where she has that swearing in ceremony uh, as mayor. And then there's a, there's, there's, there's the, there's a second ceremony that she has to go to and that's to swear allegiance to blockbuster. And it almost seems like she, you know, you know, blockbuster tells her to take a seat and tell you the, tell me the plans, tell me your plans for my city. I mean, I mean, the arrogance of Blockbuster to say that to, to the mayor of the city, that it's his. And she, like, almost overly obedient, says, my, my plan is to make, all, make us all much wealthier and extend your city beyond the city, but to do so in a way that builds on the good work you've already done. I mean, it's like reverence to Blockbuster. It's just ridiculous and over the top. Blockbuster needs a bitch slap, and, and you can bloody well expect that he's going to get it sooner rather than later from Nightwing. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time, and I have a feeling that I have a feeling that she, I hope Melinda's a a good guy. I think she's undercover. I think she's yeah, I deep undercover. Uh, yep. Yeah, and I think that's what the redacted FBI profile is all about. And I think that um, I, I think that's where we're headed on this. I hope uh, it's also possible. I mean, we could be headed for some tragedy too. I mean, uh, Tom Taylor's not afraid. To, he's not afraid to kill off characters. So. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I got all this stuff going on in my head in terms of where this could go. I think this is a fantastic uh, development. I, I, I love it. I, I think it's building Nightwing's world. The humor in here, the dialogue is spot on. I love Bite, Bitewing. I, I, I love, uh, there was a scene, I even love that the, the I, Barbara Gordon was wearing a Batman, a Batman shirt that with the Batman meme with uh, Batman slapping Robin. <laughs> she was wearing that shirt like anyways I, I i really liked it just just the uh the rapport between tim drake barbara gordon uh dick grayson uh dick grayson's stubbornness that you knew damn well he wasn't gonna get 24 hours rest eight hours rest he was gonna go and he he, he was gonna do his investigating uh heartless such a great villain i actually think that um dick grayson you know, Dick Grayson is—he's—he's he's absolutely fought metahumans before, and he made—he underestimated uh, Heartless, but Heartless also underestimated uh, Dick Grayson. And even in uh, in his compromised state, it was Heartless that took off and left and left like a coward. So he was afraid of Nightwing. Heartless left, 
I mean, Heartless got the best of Nightwing at first, but then Nightwing got the best of him. And the only way that Heartless could escape was to blow up the tier, uh, the pier, sorry, uh, where the where the kids were at, where Tim Drake was, uh, and they ultimately needed to be rescued by the citizens of Butthaven, which was a nice callback to the Batman movie, the Nolan Batman movie, where calling upon the citizens of Gotham that these are the citizens of Gotham are good, while the citizens of Bloodhaven uh, are pretty damn good too, and they came to the rescue. and And what a great, like I said, the callback to Jurgens and Fernandez and all the names of the various people that uh, done work on Nightwing, fantastic. I mean, I, I, again, you know, I've heard um, some people have said uh, that this that the, there's a lot of fan service with Tom Taylor, and he's given us a lot of fan service here, and I love it, and because uh, it's there's there's nothing wrong with fan service. Uh, some some types of fan service by writers are pandering. This is not pandering. This is just really great storytelling, and it makes sense. It comes together well, and uh, it's the type of fan service that that good writing is supposed to be just, just telling a good story and a tribute to the character and the fans. I, I, I love this. I, I, this is, this was, uh, this was my favorite of the week. This, this issue hands down. Yeah. I, I, I can see why some people would feel like Tom Taylor's a very fan friendly writer, but at the same time, you got to be careful because he pulls you in and then he'll kill somebody off or he'll, you know, spin something out in a different way than you expect. And it ends up having more impact than it would have otherwise, if it wasn't for the fact that he's pulling you in by making you think he's going in one direction, uh, which is exactly what, what I was saying about maybe it's at this point, we think it's Dick Grayson's sister and maybe she believes it, but it could all be a fake. Or like you said, um, you know, cause I totally believe she's undercover and she's not really evil. Um, it could be that this is all just a false identity that, that, that really a Melinda Zuko doesn't even exist. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's all just a plant, uh, because she's, as you said, deep undercover. So maybe it'll, maybe it'll tie into Bendis's, uh, checkmate. Oh man. <laughs> Sorry. Did I, really I hope not. You? I really hope not. <laughs> uh all right well uh let's move on to the next book we're going to talk about uh i I already mentioned it real briefly at the beginning uh it's catwoman uh we're up to issue 32 written by ram v we have a fill-in artist this issue evan cagle at least i think it's a fill-in artist uh jordy belair handles the colors tom napolitano on letters everything you know about selena kyle uh, and, and it's an interesting way that this issue is structured. Um, so we've got the, the priest father, I can't even remember his last name, but the, the real creepy guy with the glasses. Father Valley, Father Valley, Father Valley. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if he's related to John Paul Valley at, at all, you know, <laughs> know. uh, Azrael. but, but anyway, he's torturing one of, uh, the strays to try to get information and tell me about, tell me everything you know about Selena Kyle. And he starts giving her uh, hit what information he knows because he basically says, it doesn't matter. I can tell you anything about Selena uh, and it won't matter because she's still she's better than you. She's better than all, all of us. Um, and then we get sort of the, the same uh, scene repeated uh, in um, in Alleytown later when uh, the police are cracking down on the strays. Again, because of Selena Kyle, because of what happened with her rescuing Poison Ivy. And this is the beginnings of the magistrate, right? Uh, we were even told by a news reporter uh, that Alleytown has been a real hive of activity. 
because of Mayor Nakano's new law enforcement initiative, which is basically hiring this private security infrastructure, which we all know is the magistrate. So this is what I was mentioning earlier about we're continuing down that path of future state, which we can veer off that anytime. We can toss the magistrate in the garbage at any point. I'm so sick and tired of fascism as the villain uh, in comics. I've talked about it. I'm not going to rant on again about it here, but ready to move on beyond that. Okay. We need to have different villains. Let's move on from fascism. Um, but anyway, we get one of the strays who's basically saying the same thing. Uh, oh, you, you think you're going get, to get Selena Kyle? Uh, you, don't, you don't have a clue, do you? You know, when the cop's saying, I want you to tell me everything you know about Selena Kyle. And basically relaying the story. Okay, well, let me tell you about who Selena Kyle was. Even, even at the tender age of, you know, 11 or 12, she was better than everybody else. So don't you understand, detective? Like, you, you think you're here to get her? No, you're too late, too slow, two steps, too short. You're never gonna, <laughs> you're never gonna catch her, basically. And Casera's saying the same thing, you know. Um, you're never gonna catch her. And then there's a couple of other guys, a couple other police officers who are talking to uh, Maggie Kyle, Selena's sister, saying again, "Tell me everything you know about Selena Kyle." Oh, you think you already know her? Well, you know, let me explain to you what happened when she came to rescue me from uh, from the blast you know the black mask um you know she stood on the ledge and watched as his fingers let go one by one um and you think that she's been good at getting out of tough tough spots and you think whatever's happened now has gone too far this is exactly what she planned the only thing selena doesn't know how to plan for is all the collateral damage around her basically so um I've made my peace with it because I'm her sister, but you want to know everything about Selena Kyle? Know this. You should stay away from her for your own sake. So it's a very, in a way, a cynical way to look at Selena, to look at who she is as Catwoman. Uh, it does very much reflect how Selena sees herself. And what I love best about this issue, because it, first of all, I've, and I've said this before, Ram V has the most authentic Selena Kyle voice. This is who Selena Kyle is. This characterization, more than any writer I've ever had, more than any uh, Catwoman story I've ever read, this to me is who Selena Kyle would be based on what we know of her uh, upbringing, her, uh, her influences, uh, her family, and the tragedies that she's been through. Um, the only other one that comes sort of close to this is just that that real simple year one story from Frank Miller. Um, this feels like Ram V feels like he re he read year one, didn't necessarily read anything else that had Catwoman in it, and just said, "Okay, knowing what I know of Selena Kyle and Catwoman from the year one story, let me extrapolate everything else from those four issues and build upon it, and this is what you get." And so to me, this is the best, without question, Catwoman characterization and Selena Kyle characterization that we've ever had. What makes that so interesting is how it plays with everything else. Because clearly Ramvi didn't just read those four issues. He's way too much of a professional for that. And I, I think he especially paid attention to what Tom King has done or did in his Batman run and also what, um, what James Tynan has done. Um, and, and what really all the whole Batman family books are doing with Selena Kyle recently, 
because when you look at that, when you look at what the story that Ramvi is telling through the lens of all those other complicated storylines that are going on, what Joel Jones did, uh, you know, after Selena basically left Bruce at the altar and then everything that happened in, uh, in the Joker war, she becomes a much more complicated character because of all those other storylines and all those other portrayals of her. And then how does that play into how we see Selena Kyle through the lens of how Ram V wants to show her. And that's where the really interesting part comes in. How do you reconcile? How does Selena herself reconcile who we know her to be or who she's always been to herself and the way she sees herself, which is the way Ram V is portraying her with all these extraneous forces, you know, with her, this emotion she feels for Bruce Wayne. And to me, that's the most interesting part of it, right? Like at her core, Selena feels like she's should be by herself, that she's alone, that she's very self-reliant and doesn't need anybody else. But yet you can think that in your head, but the heart wants what the heart wants. And that's what's so interesting about the Batman Catwoman uh, relationship and love. And then obviously if Batman Catwoman, the black label book, does enter canon at some day we know they end up married so it's that sort of thing that really makes this such a fascinating read um because i think this is who selena is she's aloof and she she tries to put her feelings aside and she tries to just be the best she is at what she does kind of like wolverine i guess you'd say uh in that way um but she can't turn off there is that part of her her emotion her heart her love for bruce her love for, for her sister she does care on some level and certainly cares for the strays and, and um, sort of her allies in Alleytown and, and will go, you know, above and beyond to help uh, save them and protect them. And so she's fiercely loyal in that way uh, as well. So there's all these different complexities and all these different sides to Selena Kyle, which is a, why in a way it's so amusing to have all these different characters, you know, reaching out to people that know Selena well saying, tell me everything you know about, Selena Kyle. She can't be put in a box. Um, she's too complicated for that. Um, and I, I just find it fascinating. So to, this was my favorite issue, my, my favorite DC book uh, of the week, just because I think it's expertly done. And uh, the cover, it kind of uh, foreshadows that, right? We see uh, Father Valley, he's opening up his Bible and all these different pictures of uh, Catwoman are falling out in her different costumes that she's worn over the years. Um, but in a way, Ram V is, is finding a way to reconcile all those different versions of Catwoman that we've had over the years um, and distilling it down to this uh, this perfect voice for her that I, I think he's had for her characterization throughout his run. So, uh, And as far as the art goes, like I said, I think it's a guest artist, Evan Cagle. I think Fernando Blanco will be back. But I thought he did a pretty solid job. Um but I thought the art was a little inconsistent. There's a few there's a few panels where the art is absolutely spectacular, and then there's other panels where I didn't feel the storytelling was quite as strong as it could be. Um, but again, I'm not familiar with him, so he may not be that uh, experienced. But there are times when his art would remind me of other uh, artists, like the the, the panel where um, where Maggie Kyle's brushing her hair behind her ear that looked so much to me like a brad walker uh rendered uh, illustration except with finer lines uh and then there's a few other lines where it looks like straight out of manga 
or a few other panels rather. So <laughs> I'd be interested in seeing him uh, on a book long term just to see him kind of solidify his style. Uh, but anyway, I, I thought it was fat fantastic. What did you think, Rocky? I thought this was really good. Uh, this was a very close second for me for uh, with Nightwing. This this was excellent. Uh, I honestly, I had to even Yvonne Cagle's art was it. I had to double check because I at first I didn't realize it was much different. It, it but but he yeah it it it's very stylistically it's uh, very similar to uh, it's Fernando Blanco, isn't it? Normally, the artist. And, uh, but yeah, cause it was, it's, it's gorgeous. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, you, you, uh, you spoke, you spoke of the different incarnations of Catwoman and how Ram V is trying to sort of maybe draw his own reconciliations of all those different incarnations and, and through Father Valley, Father Valley is the villain and he wants to get a handle on who Catwoman is too. And that's why he's torturing one of the strays. Um, I don't think that, um, uh, while I uh, while I applaud the effort on the part of Ram V, I will say that I I don't know how I don't know how deep you can really dive into Catwoman Selena because I I think at heart I don't really I've never really found her to be a complicated character, and I'm not getting the sense that she's a complicated character in the nature of this story. I mean the the big revelation here that the the only thing Selena can't plan for are the things that happen to people on her side. As her sister Maggie says, well, that's true of every hero. I mean, you you can never plan for all the things that are going to happen if a bad guy harps harms people on your side. That's that's not really saying much. Uh, although I although I will say that, um, you know, it what this issue did emphasize that I thought and and emphasized very well is that Selena is somebody. She's a thief. She's a thief at heart, and in many ways, she's a loner. And she herself is a straight is a straight cat. She she's a loner, and yet when she loves somebody, she loves them to death because they usually die. The Frank Baz character, one of the first people she fell in love with, another thief at the beginning of the story, he ends up dying, and she ends up uh, you know instead of killing the person who killed him, she ends up uh, she ends up apprehending the person and. Uh, you know, going back and getting even, and but not killing him, and and so she she does have her own sense of moral code. She uh, her first her first mentor was Mama for 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 uh, Mama Fortuna, who was the original leader of the Strays in Alleytown, and she essentially used to be a stray cat herself, a stray herself, and eventually sort of took over the Strays. I, I think Ram V is creating that new history. For for Selena Kyle, I don't know if that's uh, I don't know if, if that's ever been part of uh, Selena Kyle's uh, history before, where she was she grew up uh, astray and was mentored by this Mama Fortune or Mama Fortuna or whatever. Uh, I I think that's building on that Mama Fortune I've heard before, but in, in any event, I I like that aspect of it. The whole I I he's building up the lore of Alleytown and. It's and it's not just Gotham City. This this is Alley Town in Gotham City is its own world, and it's it's really Selena Kyle. You know, Batman. You know, but Gotham City might have Batman, but Alley Town within Gotham has Catwoman, and and that's her world. And she might be somewhat of a loner and a thief herself, but she's almost like a queen of her. She's like the queen cat, and uh, and she she protects everybody. And 
I don't know if I don't know if I agree a hundred percent with Maggie, because uh, I think she's a she's a pretty. I mean, her sister Maggie's a screwed up narrator. I mean, she's a she's a, she's had a lot of mental health issues. She's been through quite a lot, Maggie, her sister, and so. You know, Maggie here says has said said in the issue, I've made my peace with the fact that you know Selena can't plan, can't always protect me. Is essentially what she's saying, and uh, yeah, I suppose get used to it. I mean, if uh, uh, that's just the nature of the beast, when you're uh, if 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 you're, if you're going to be a friend of of Selena Kyle or Bruce Wayne or anybody else in the DC universe, you got to always be you got you always have a target on your back. But in any event, I enjoyed it. I love Father Valley. I think Father Valley, I think he's trying to prop him up. I don't think Father Valley, I don't know what the hell Father Valley learned that was of any use to him. He was already torturing and hurting Selena Kyle's friends, and he ends up stabbing the stray at the end of this issue. So he didn't need to hear all these stories. So I, I don't know if this 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 issue maybe was a the reason why this isn't first place for me is because of this whole issue I thought maybe was not even completely necessary, but really, but really enjoyable because it again, there's always that cinematic feel with Ram V, where you're out, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck, and it's a it's a character driven tale. You get into Maggie's head, the detective's head, the Stray's head, uh, uh, Selena Kyle's uh, different incarnations of Selena Kyle. Great art, man. The full package. I'm happy. Yeah, I I mean I agree with you in, in that well. You know, you said Selena's a simple character. You know, she's just a thief. I think she started out that way, but I, I and I think that's where the conflict comes. The inner conflict comes is she she wants to be that simple person. She wants to not care and not have responsibilities that come along with emotional attachments to people. But I think over the years, her life has become more complicated because she has made those connections. You know, she has fallen in love with Batman. She does care about her sister. She has become uh, the queen of alley town and, and whatever responsibilities come come with that and so i think selena is is finding herself you know more responsible than she wants to be you know or having more attachments than she maybe would prefer if if she had the choice and i think that's what's interesting about what ramby is doing and why this is such a a great story of of catwoman why it's the best catwoman story that we've ever had because it is exploring this idea of, you know, who, who is she? Is she the loner? Is she the loner thief? Or is she something more, you know, do these relationships that she's had and attachments that she's had over the years, are they starting to become the priority? Uh, and in that way, you almost think that as they've, as DC editorial has decided to make her a bigger part of, kind of the Batman supporting cast with a, with a possible marriage in the future. We, we almost got it. Didn't consummate. Um, but kind of similar to Harley Quinn, um, kind of whitewashing her a, a little bit because in the past, Catwoman wouldn't really have any problem with killing, but we, you know, in this issue, we get a tale of one of her first heists and she, yeah, leaves the guy tied up in front of his empty safe rather than killing him. Um, despite the fact that this guy had killed her first love that doesn't necessarily jive with the Catwoman we know from back in the day that's exactly but certainly right. does jive with the Catwoman that dc <laughs> wants to give us now you know they live more in the gray area comics are a little more complicated so uh anyway on to static shock season number one 
Uh, so this is the, the first of the milestone books that are bringing the, uh, the milestone characters back to uh, the DC universe. We did have the, it was first released digitally. The milestone returns zero issue was re- released digitally last year during the, uh, uh, the fandom event. And then we got uh, a printed version recently and, and a digital version, I think, in February. And so now we're getting the first of the actual issues for uh, Milestone Returns. And I'm, I'm really excited. So uh, Static Season 1, as it's titled, uh, written by Vita Ayala, layouts by Chris Cross, finishes in colors by Nicholas Draper Ivy, letters by Ann World Designs. Um, and the other cool thing is on the main cover that we see static shock. There's a movie theater in the background uh, and the name of the movie theater is McDuffie. And that's referencing the, the late great Dwayne McDuffie, who was one of the founders of milestone, but on the marquee, not only do we see McDuffie's name, we see Cowan, which is a reference to Dennis Cowan, another one of the founders Davis, which is uh, a reference to Michael S Davis, another of the founders of milestone media and Dingle, which is uh, Derek Dingle. I don't, I don't think he was one of the original founders, but he came in very, very early. Uh, so it's great that they're referencing these four that had uh, much to do with with the Milestone uh, Media Universe, Dakotaverse, as it was called, uh, during the first go-round. So, uh, yeah, it's it's back, finally, long-awaited. Uh, and what did you think of this first issue of Static, Rocky? Uh, f- just full disclosure, I'm I'm actually reading about Static really for the first time. I remember years ago reading a couple issues. I really... Plum completely forgot about it. So uh, this was a complete refresh from my memory. I couldn't even tell you if this is a if this is a redo of his origin or if it's different in any way. So this was really, I feel like I'm, uh, for all intents and purposes, I'm reading this cold. And I liked it. You know, uh, again, I, I thought it was well done. I, I will say that, uh, first of all, the, the, the multiple different covers here, I think, are great. Uh I, I do think that the the four ninety nine price tag is uh, a little bit high for these variant covers. I think for an introductory issue for getting to know Static uh, is uh, is a little bit uh, high. It should be three ninety nine. Also, you keep calling them Static Shock, and I know that it was before. Is does he just go by Static now, or is it the go by Static Shock? Uh, that's a good question. And I don't know the answer. I yeah. I, I just, I'm just, I'm just, cause I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant on that. It's, it's called static, but you know, I'm thinking, you know, it's, I always thought it was static, static, static shock too. But in any event, I, I, I think I actually don't mind this story as an origin story. I like it. The, and the origin story that, you know, it starts off with the big bang <laughs> and, then, and, and I'm not talking about the beginnings of the universe. The big bang refers to an event and the Big Bang was a protest. It was a BLM protest, Black Lives Matter protest, where uh, young Virgil Hawkins, who will become static, uh, attends this protest. And the police in, in Dakota City in breaking up this protest use some gas, uh, but it's an, they use an experimental gas to, to uh, tear gas to break up the crowds. And this tear gas actually causes a lot of... Uh, a lot of the people in the crowd to some some die some some faces melt and they all have different reactions to this gas and and of course for Virgil Hawkins he's he gets ends up with static powers or electrical powers of some kind and 
And uh, so do some other people in the crowd, including of uh, Francis Stone, who is go, who will go by Hot Streak, and his arch nemesis Hot Streak is also a bully. And so it's a little bit tropey, but these are teenagers. These are teenagers that attend a rally, a Black Lives Matter rally, and they end up getting uh, they end up getting superpowers by this formative Big Bang event. And in fact, they're known as Bang Babies, and so. Uh, credit to the, um, credit to Vida Ayala. I mean, the, uh, she's, she's developing a narrative here. These bang babies who are, uh, they're, they're, they're known as b- these individuals that acquire these powers. Uh, they're, I guess they're people of interest. And, uh, this, well, I, I'm not sure where this is going to go. There's a little bit of maybe a kind of a new mutants kind of vibe. I'm getting a little bit of a vibe in that. Even though there's no mentor of of, of static, uh, there is. If you've read the milestone returns as I have, uh, which was very helpful to me, uh, it this does overlap. For example, the the character known as Hardware, he's actually the person who created the gas that the tear gas that broke up uh, broke up the crowd. But uh, he didn't. He it wasn't ready for use. But Elva Industries. Of used it anyway, and uh, they they're blaming this hardware. His real name is Curtis Metcalf, the hardware uh, milestone character. He he, that's how they're bringing in the the other milestone universe characters, and Icon and Rocket. Uh, while this uh, this is not in this particular issue, but in the larger narrative, they're they're aware of this of this Big Bang event. This is a huge event that sort of kicks off the milestone universe. Is that. Is it is this this BLM protest is where a lot of this the, the formative the formative creation of the milestone universe takes place in this BLM uh, movement. I hope that even though there's there's some politics in here, I hope it doesn't turn people off from this story. Uh, I didn't find it. I didn't find the you know the the odd political reference in here. I didn't find it off putting or anything like that. It, it made sense to me. This is a young kid, Virgil Hawkins. He's got a he's got a girl. He's got a crush on this Frida. Uh, he's got a, you know, um, he's got a good sister named Sharon. His, his, fa- his father, uh, always wanted to teach him karate, taught him, he got a green belt, but then he stopped his training when he was younger <laughs> and Virgil uses his training ultimately when, when hot streak attacks him at school. And then they, these are, these two students end up using their powers that they just newly acquired at the, at the big bang event at the protest. And initially Initially, uh, Static gets the better of Hot Streak, and then Hot Streak at the end of the issue ends up ultimately uh, getting the better of, uh, or Hot Streak ends up essentially looks like almost burning down their homes. Um, artistically, I really was impressed with the art. Uh, in fact, who's the artist again, uh, Jace? Crisscross. Crisscross. Uh, yeah, does the layouts, and then it's. Um, I think the colorist also did the the finishes, yeah. Um, and he's somebody whose whose art that I'm not, whose name I'm not I'm not familiar with. Um, yeah. But yeah, I thought because he does the colors as well, uh, yeah. Nicholas Draper Ivy, uh, and, well, and he's and he did the um, that second cover. Yeah. The yeah. one where Hot Streak's kind of in the upper left, so he clearly has some some rendering skills himself. Yeah. No, but it's uh, I really enjoy it. I mean, artistically, this this issue is was is beautifully drawn. 
Like it's, I, I, I don't know how I, I get frustrated sometimes. I lack the language to adequately describe the, the coloring and, and the palette, but it just, I really liked the, the, I, I can't wait to see this in comic book form, how it feels on the page. And, but I mean, this looks beautiful digitally. This looks, I really like this style and I like the way the colors sort of like pop off the page, even the individual shirts and the, <laughs> and the, and the, and the coloring and, and even the hairstyles and, the, and just really good. I mean, I'm just really impressed with this. He's got a beautiful sister. He's got a good family life, good rapport. Uh, there's, there's, there's a little degree of family dysfunction there, but, uh, even narratively, the way it's, the issue starts off with uh, almost like a DJ giving, giving a talk about giving us the, the Coles notes version of what's happened to sort of bring us up to speed, uh, talk, touching base with what happened in the milestone returns, uh, issue that came out a couple weeks ago. Again, um, I recommend. I would recommend that people pick this up. I think it's it's even worth the four ninety nine uh, price tag on it. I'm, yeah, I'm going to be picking up the next few issues on this. I, I'm actually really impressed. I, I like the world building that's began with this, because uh, this isn't. Um, this feels quite enjoyable. I'm really looking forward to Icon and uh, to uh, Icon and Rocket. Uh, those issues. Uh, and, and hard work coming out. I really like this and I'm, I'm definitely in, I was, I was actually fairly impressed and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in for the, uh, this is probably Vito Ayala. I don't, I haven't really been impressed with a lot of the stuff she's written. This is probably the most impressed I've been with her work, uh, in quite a while for, but I don't know. What do you, what did you think of this? Are you, is this, can you, can you see yourself becoming a static fan or what? Yeah, so for, first of all, we should say Vita is non-binary, so we should refer to them uh, as they or them. Um, okay. Uh, but I so and the other part is so I I did I was a fan of the Milestone universe the, the first go round, and um, it's no surprise here that there's there's politics involved because that that was the whole point of Milestone the first time around, right? Was to bring representation to. Uh, to the kind of underrepresented in terms of the heroes that you see in, in comics. Right. And so that's why most of the heroes in the original milestone universe were persons of color. And that's why you see here that, you know, these heroes are going to be persons of color and the creators creating them are going to be creators who are persons of color because they're bringing their own, uh, you know, real life experiences of what it means to be a minority in this world, in this society and how that's affected them. I, I couldn't, not that I'm a comic creator, but you know, I'm, I'm a white guy, a straight white guy. I live life on the easiest setting. Um, you know, didn't ask for that, but that's just the reality. And I try to be as, uh, you know, as much of an ally and, and aware and as open-minded as I can. And these are stories that need to be told. Obviously static has been a pretty popular character. And I think the static shock, I always find myself referring to the character. The character is static. Static shock is the cartoon that, you know, really was the reason that everybody, uh, why, why Static is the most well-known and, and why it makes sense for Milestone Returns to launch with Static because that was the name of the, the cartoon that really brought a higher profile to to the character. So in, in terms of, of this actual story, it, it does have a lot in common with the original iteration. Uh, the original, uh, original iteration, it was uh, Virgil Hawkins and he was, go into this big brawl between a couple gangs and the cops show up and they want to break up the gang fight and they, they shoot tear gas, which had been 
um, unbeknownst to the police, had been contaminated with this Q juice, which was sort of like the equivalent of the uh, Dakota verse uh, equivalent of like the metagene, right? To, to activate metagenes in, in people and give them powers. And they also referred to it as the, the big bang and bang babies and all that. So there's a lot of similarities here. Uh, obviously it's, it's updated for modern times. This time it's a black, uh, lives matter protest and, and all of it is very much, um, real. Uh, I think Vita does an incredible job of grounding this story in the, sort of uh, concerns and realism of what uh, society is like today. I think they do a similar job in Children of X, which they're writing for Marvel, which is also absolutely fantastic. Uh, the other thing that I'll say is that, you know, uh, I know Vita personally, and, uh, you know, they bring a lot of their own experiences in terms of growing up in New York um, and, you know, what that means to be a person of color Um and, and to have the heritage that they have and, and having grown up and seen the, the prejudice and racism. And, you know, we, we all know it still exists, you know, as much as we wish it didn't or maybe thought we were further along and then the last four years have showed us otherwise. So despite the fact that I'm disappointed that Milestone didn't return sooner when it was first announced, I think it was 2016 at San Diego Comic-Con. I, I, was, I remember I was in the room um, when Reginald Hud uh, Hudland and Dennis Cowan, and I think I think that was it, came up on the stage, um, and they were saying, "Hey, yeah, we're going to bring back uh, Milestone." And then there was issues of ownership and whatnot um, with Dwayne McDuffie's widow and making sure proper compensation, uh, compensation, and all the legal mess or whatever. But in a way, it might be a blessing in disguise to have it come back now, um, because I feel like a lot of the the issues and the ideas and the things that can be explored are more in the forefront of people's minds. And, and this is a perfect example of the way you can start conversations. And what I love is all of that is the subtext, right? But what Vita does is they take that subtext and they don't hit you over head, head with it. They make sure that it remains subtext. And the story we get is about Virgil Hawkins and his family and about the family dynamics and about the interactions between Virgil and his sister and his parents and his friends at school. And all of that, all that struggle, which is very much similar to things that you can think back and place in their particular era, like The Amazing Spider-Man um, and what was going on in the 60s with uh, Peter Parker and him trying to get along and the whole bookworm thing and, um, you know, trying to, to make money and help support his aunt. And, you know, all, all that sort of idea, that whole kind of archetype of a young hero who's got all the, these responsibilities of, of being at that age and trying to discover who you are on top of having superpowers and just trying to juggle all those things. And it's what static, the first series did very well. And it's what this series has started out doing very, very well. Not the least of which is contributed to by the art that, uh, that Rocky mentioned. Uh, the crisscross layouts are, are fantastic. The Nicholas Draper, uh, Ivy colors and finishes are fantastic as well. Uh, there's a lot of montage pieces. There's a lot of, scenes where the characters break the panels, um, which gives it a, sort of the cinematic feel. Um, and, and I could easily see this, you know, as an animated series or, or even live action. Uh, we may be putting the car to the head of the horse here, but um, <laughs> it, it's just, it's fantastic, right? It, it just feels so grounded and so real. And it pulls you in in such a way that you kind of forget you're reading a comic because it, it, 
the characters just feel so authentic. Um, and I think that's where the, the issue shines the most. And I, I credit the entire collaborative team, um, you know, both the, the, the words from Vita and, and the layouts and finishes from Chris Cross and Nicholas Draper. Uh, Anne Design does a great job with the, uh, the letters. Uh, the whole issue is narrated by Virgil uh, with these blue boxes and, and white lettering, and it all flows very, very well, well-paced. Um, it is a, a bit longer than a normal comic, usually, you know, 20 pages. You get 22 here. And then, of course, there's a couple of preview pages for uh, Icon and Rocket and, and hardware. So, yeah, I think if this is going to be the quality of the Milestone Returns books, then they're all going to be hits in my mind. Um, I do agree with you, Rocky, for a, a debut issue. You would hope it would be a, a little less, you know, maybe a dollar less because you, you really want as many people to, to grab hold of this as you can. Obviously, the regular covers are three ninety nine, but then those cardstock covers, uh, you know, they're adding a dollar, and that's uh, yeah. But I think all the color, uh, all the covers are are fantastic. There's a couple incentive covers I saw too that I'm like, hmm, I might be able to see if I can swing one or two of those because uh, they're fantastic as well. So yeah, great debut. I mentioned right at the top, you know, a couple great new number ones. And that was one that I was referring to, obviously, along with uh, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. All right, moving on, we have Batman uh, Fortnite Zero Point number five. Uh, this is written by Christos Gage, concept and story consultant Donald Mustard, art by Christian Ducey, colors by John Kalis. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to say here uh, about this. It's it's fun and it's it's good in as much as it's it's mixing these two worlds, but I do sort of feel like the story has, or, or the whole title really has lost a little bit of the, the momentum. Um, we still don't have all the answers, but the mystery of what was going on early on felt like it was, it was more fun. I, I don't know if the mystery for me has dragged on too long or what. It just, this, it doesn't have quite the same level of, uh, it, it just doesn't hook me the way that it did in, in the beginning. Uh, I will say we do get a revelation here of, of Deathstroke is the one that's been working with whomever all along. Not a surprise. We know Deathstroke is, uh, you know, has no loyalty whatsoever. So that's not a surprise at all that he's uh, actually a traitor in their midst. Um, I thought the action went over pretty well. I, I do feel like this is more wordy. I mean, we've had some issues where you could read it in like three minutes because Batman couldn't talk. And it was a lot of action with him fighting in um, in the Fortnite world. Uh, and now it's like, hey, are we making up for lost time where everybody's talking all the time, <laughs> saying something? So I, I don't know. It, it, I still enjoy it. Um, I still think overall, when you sit down and read all six issues, it's going to be a fun story. But I, this just wasn't the best issue for me. It was just okay. It felt a little bit transitional. Uh, I'm very curious to get to the last issue Um to see what exactly has been going on because uh, as I said, Deathstroke turns out to be the traitor and he betrays Batman and Catwoman in the worst sort of way, I guess, trapping them in this, uh, this world they're in. Uh, and I guess we'll find out how it all shakes out next issue. So yeah, for me, this was probably the weakest issue so far, but it might've just been, Hey, maybe this series went on one issue longer than it should have. Maybe we didn't need so much of what we had here. Maybe we should have just had the conclusion 
uh, or just had it paced out or, or you know, the issues broken down differently. Um, but I don't know, maybe you feel different, Rocky. Maybe you, you really enjoyed it. I, and again, I'm not saying it's bad. It just didn't rise to the level. Like I thought the first two or three issues were, were fantastic. Um, and it, it just feels like ever since Batman had the ability to talk, <laughs> it feels like the story's bogged down a little bit. So <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Well, it feels like uh, we're at part five here. So this is actually, we're getting every every single issue to, to the credit of writer uh, Christos Cage and the, the art. I mean, the artist here is Christian uh, Deuce. It's, it's been fantastic. It's, it's been action-packed. And I actually got to say that even even though it's been action-packed, there's actually been some story here. And there's been I, I was impressed with the actual detective work. Uh, and they, I thought I thought Batman actually had some workable detective work that you could follow along with and be impressed with. Uh, so I was impressed by Christos Cage put that together. And there's actually Christos Cage. Batman does a lot of detective work here in this issue as well. The dialogue here really works well. And the dialogue and the interplay between these very different characters is actually quite workable. And, you know, one thing about this is that this is a fast read in a way. I, I, I enjoyed, even though there's a lot of dialogue, it, it reads quick and it, and the, because it's always action packed from pa- issue to issue, from page to page, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's moving briskly. And I, I enjoy it for that reason. I do think that it should probably have, it should have ended this issue. However, I will say this at the end, uh, spoiler alert, surprise, surprise. We give spoilers here at the end, Batman and Selena, of course, managed to make it so that all the other, all the people escape, uh, escape zero point, which is where they're at. And of course, Deathstroke sabotages things. So he escapes and the issue ends with Batman and Selena being trapped at zero point with seemingly no way to escape to their own world because it's basically discovered that Batman figures out that uh, that everybody has a different vibrational frequency that matches the world or universe where they're from. And uh, for people who love DC DC crisis history, you, you know that we all vibrate at a different vibrational frequency depending on what Earth we're from and and so the and as long as you match the frequency of your world you can travel to that to that world that's the Coles notes version and so they utilizing that through the science that they discover batman helps all his uh, compatriots go back to their own world unfortunately at the end Bat- batman and selena kyle are trapped catwoman are trapped on yeah, at zero point now the reason now normally I would think uh, I wouldn't be inclined to get a final issue because it's like this is dragged on but I really like the character work I think it was an issue uh, 1 where Batman and there was a lot of good character work it was an all silent issue but you could you could tell as Batman and Catwoman even though they didn't remember each other they kind of felt they remembered they knew they had feelings for each other and there's actually good character work here regarding batman and catwoman and i'm actually interested to see how what crystal's cage does with that in the final issue now that batman and catwoman with their memories intact are we going to get some really good character moments and because this is not necessarily in continuity maybe it is i mean it's it's the omniverse now so who knows right i'm wondering if crystal's cage is going to maybe push some boundaries and maybe we'll have a good Batman Catwoman story for issue six. So overall, um, 
it, it could have ended here and it, I would have been perfectly fine. But because I'm interested to see what he has to say, some interesting character moments to expect from characters in, in issue six, my fingers are crossed that the final issue here will hit it out of the park. And besides, we need another issue anyway so people can get their extra... What do you what do you get? If you're a video, if you're into Fortnite, you need to get the codes, right? To get that to complete the yep. Harley Quinn character. So <laughs> Yeah, that's right. There you go. But yeah, no, I uh, I didn't mind it. Yeah, I, I I think maybe I'll judge issue five a little more uh generously after I get issue six and see how it all plays out in the end. So <laughs> Uh, all right, on to the last book we're going to talk about, Superman Red-Blue. Uh, what are we on? Issue number four here. Uh, so we have several several stories in this uh, in this Superman. Uh, and, you know, here's the thing. Like, I, I, I was talking to somebody on social media about this the other day. Th- these limited pa- uh, color palette stories, I, th- I think we really need to give them a rest for, for a while. Their argument was, oh, I think the, the format can work, but... I, I just, it's not new or innovative anymore. You know, do the Batman black and white or the, the carnage, you know, red and black or hardly red, black and, and white or whatever it was. And, and now the Superman red, blue, um, purposely choosing to limit it. It doesn't do the artist any favors necessarily. And being that they're shorter stories, some characters, they who they are, who the characters are sort of lend themselves to shorter stories and some don't. And I really do feel, as much as I love Superman, this Superman Red and Blue, you know, it has been the least successful, I feel like, uh, of these types of, of story. Because what else have we had? We've had, it started with Batman Black and White. Yeah. We've had the Carnage Red and Black. We've had Wolverine uh, Red, Black, and Blood. We're, we're getting had, the Wonder Woman Gold and Black next yeah, week. Yeah, so. yeah Wonder or, Woman is coming out with one. And it's just like, you know, for... For a character that's as hard to write as Superman, and I, I get it, like some that's a whole argument. Some people think he's hard to write. Some people think he's not. Uh, you know, he's too much of a Boy Scout. He's, he's too boring or, or whatever. It's a discussion for another time. But the fact of the matter is that some people don't understand the character and, the, and they have a harder time. Uh, and so I think he's a character that it's much, it's much tougher for the average writer to give us a good Superman story in such a limited amount of space uh and then when you're also limiting the artist and and how they can bring emotion to the story because of limited color palette you know i think you're really putting yourself behind the eight ball so unfortunately i think this has been i mean in a word it's been kind of boring honestly because you're hitting a lot of the same notes like if you're going to tell a um a superman story eight page superman story well the easiest thing to do is just concentrate on the fact he's a symbol of hope and we just keep getting that over and over and over um so it's been a little it's been a little rough. So anyway, in the, in this particular issue, we get a a story called Nam Repus, which is Superman written backwards. Uh, that's written by Mark Wade with art by Audrey Muck, colors by Jordi Belair, lettered by Dave Sharp. We get Prospect of Tomorrow, which is written and illustrated by Francis Manipal, lettered by Dave Sharp. A Little Is a Lot, which is written by Robert Venditti, art by Aletha Martinez, colored by Emilio Lopez, lettered by Dave Sharp. For the Man Who Has Nothing, written by Michael W. Conrad, art by Cully Hamner, lettered by Pat Brousseau. And then finally, Hashtag Saved by Superman, written by Rich Duick, art by Joe Quinones, lettered by Dave Sharp. So the first one is basically uh, a Mixia's Pitalik story where things are sort of flipped 
around. Usually it's Mixie's Pitalik showing up in our dimension. Superman has to trick him into saying his name backwards to get him to go back in his dimension. Well, Superman shows up in the fifth dimension here to sort of, sort of teach Mixie's Pitalik a lesson. And Mixie's Pitalik thinks that he's going to have to get Superman to say his name backwards. But it turns out what he really needs to do is get Superman to say his true name, which is Clark Kent backwards. Obviously he doesn't know the true name, so he fails. He spends the entire story trying to get Superman <laughs> to say Superman backwards in alphabet soup, in an eye exam, in a, a classroom. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's pretty interesting and fun. And for lack of a better way to describe the art, it looks like it belongs in a greeting card. <laughs> uh, especially the especially the colors, yeah. um, which sort of works. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I ultimately ended up thinking, what was the point of the story? It it felt. I mean, it's Mark Wade, you know. Yeah. If anybody can give me a good eight page Superman story, it should be Mark Wade. But it just it felt uh, it felt sort of pointless. So I I don't know. I wasn't a big fan of it. What did you think, Rocky? Uh, I, I didn't mind this. I, I could, I could understand Mark Wade writing this. Uh, he he likes uh, he likes Mixias Patelic, Mixias Pitalik, however you want to say his name. I've heard it pronounced both ways. But, but uh, this was this was actually it was actually kind of funny. You know, I mean, it was this was humorous. Uh, I've I've. Kudos to Mark Wade. I'd never thought of uh, Superman wanting to get one up on Mixia's Pitalik to go to, to his dimension to to be as annoying to him as Mixia's Pitalik usually is to him when he comes to to his dimension, and just as a way, Superman's basically trying to make the point. Look, you see how annoying I am. I mean, you know, you're as annoying. You know, may, maybe stay here, enjoy your life. You know, and it's kind of funny uh, that the, the little little. The sub subplot going on behind the scenes is Mixes Pitalik wants the and he wants to woo this woman that he that he's in love with, and uh, and ultimately uh, Superman uh, uh, basically leaves of his own accord because he realizes that you know reasoning with uh, Mixes Pitalik isn't going to work, so he leaves, and then it ends up uh, it ends up that Superman actually did Mixes Pitalik a favor by. Uh, Exp explaining to the woman he loves that uh you know that basically that you know mixes Pitalik is is really a good guy and then you know he uh he put in a good word for him basically uh but you know that that really that only makes things more more frustrating for mixes Pitalik because he's really really upset because uh um he can't even uh you know that's soup that his own girlfriend now thinks that superman's a nice guy and that just drives him crazy and uh, so it's 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 kind of funny. It's, I mean, Mark Wade I think understands something that at least I've always thought of Mixes Pitalik as kind of a joke character, and 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 I've always thought that treating him to be like a really serious character is sometimes kind of a mistake. I think I think I think of Mixes Pitalik along the lines of along the lines of Batmite. You know, he shouldn't be taken too seriously. Uh, but you know, people can disagree with me on that. I, I, I know that he's from the sixth dimension now, uh, along with Batmite when in the pages of Scott Snyder's justice league, you know, a couple years ago, but 
you know, I, I like this more fun, sort of like Silver Age type of mixes, Pitalix. So uh, kudos to Mark Wade. I, it, this was not my favorite in the issue, but it, it was it was a fun read. Yeah, sounds like you enjoyed it a little more than, <laughs> than me. But uh, all right, moving on. So the next one actually has the best art in in the uh, yeah. whole book, I think. Prospect, Prospect of Tomorrow, Francis Manipole. Uh, yeah. But but really, it ends up being a sort of a bizarro story in a way. Um, and it, it mm. and it is interesting in the story structure of of what we think it is, and then what it turns out to be. But ultimately. Again, I just end up wondering, okay, what was the point of this? Like it was it wasn't it didn't break new ground. It didn't I don't know. Um despite the fantastic art, I just it left no impact on me. Maybe the least memorable of all the stories to the point where I don't really have much to say about it. Like okay, so Superman basically the, there's some signal coming from space and Star Labs tells Superman about it, and he flies out there and rescues Bizarro. That's the whole story. Yep. <laughs> like, what? That's, like, that's it? Yeah. Like, what was the point? Again, I, I just I, – I think this is a perfect example of, of the kind of the failure of, of Superman Red Blue. Um, I understand that every writer is like, well, I can't write a story about how Superman's a symbol of hope because that's what everybody else is doing. <laughs> but what else can you do with the character in eight pages – uh, and it requires a really, a really interesting way of looking at the character, or, or a, a deeper understanding of Superman. And I think a lot of these creators maybe just don't have that, yeah. or it's just that hard. Um, and I'm not saying it's easy by any stretch of the imagination, because I, it's not like I could say, oh, I've got a hundred ideas for a quick eight-page Superman story. I don't. Um, but. Yeah. Fantastic art. That's what I'll say. About oh yeah, this. gorgeous art. And I think yeah. visually alone, it, this is you know honestly, the, in fairness, a lot of this stuff is just just to get to see some of this art. It's it's worth it, even if the story might be very simplistic and might be an uneventful. This is basically Superman just coming to the rescue uh, story. Nothing, you know, it's it doesn't even have a message, really. It's just about helping Bizarro, but it is so beautifully rendered. I mean, this is absolutely gorgeous art. And, uh, you know, it's just Superman helping Bizarro. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, there you go. It's, so yeah, it's visually, it's, it's really good, but, you know, hey, I mean, this is, I mean, uh, the, the artist, this is, this is, um, Francis Manipal. Francis Manipal. So he he doesn't normally write, does he? But I mean, he's he normally he, he doesn't write very often, does he? When's the last thing? He, what's... Uh, well, no. I mean, he he was the artist and co-writer on Flash when they relaunched it with New Fifty Two. Oh, he was co-writing. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, in Rebirth, he had the Trinity series that he wrote and did the art for. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's definitely a storyteller. But no, I mean, it's not like that's not his first. It's not how he broke in or anything like that. So, yeah. Uh, the next story. Uh, are you done talking about? Yeah, that certainly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the next one, uh, A Little is a Lot by Robert Venditti, art by Aletha Martinez. This is probably my favorite. Uh, and it, again, it shows that, I mean, first of all, Superman is Robert Venditti's favorite character. <laughs> so, you know, again, that probably helps out, right? Like uh, what I was just talking about, some of these creators maybe don't have a great understanding of Superman. Robert Venditti clearly does. And instead of telling a story about Superman as a symbol of hope or, 
or missing the mark completely. He tells a story of, of Clark Kent and, and Pa Kent and how the, the little lessons that Pa taught Clark as he was growing up in Smallville translated and made him the hero that he is. Reading this story, and this is a relatively quick read in terms of how much actual dialogue there is or narration. Uh, we get several pages where there's not a single word on the page um, as Superman basically holds up an overpass that has collapsed. Um, so that people can escape. Uh, and you can tell that he's struggling uh, with the weight of the cars and whatnot that are, um, that are on the uh, overpass to allow people to not only escape, but grab their belongings, grab their dog, grab, you know, whatever. Um, and it, it all goes to a little is a lot. And it, it's mirrored by this lesson that Paul Kent taught when he, uh, even though they had a poor crop of hay, they were sharing some of what they had with a neighbor who had an even worse time. And, and Clark saying, well, what good is us taking this little bit to them going to help? Well, if everybody gives a little, you know, if everybody comes together and gives a little, it ends up being a lot, right? And so as Superman is holding up this overpass, um, not only is he doing what he can, you see other people that are helping those trapped in the cars, you know, other citizens coming to the rescue. Um, because if everybody contributes a little, it, it adds up to a lot. Right. And so that's the, that's the lesson. And it does go to show, despite me saying that, uh, for the most part, Superman red and blue, I feel like hasn't been successful as a, <laughs> as a title. This is sort of <laughs> proving me wrong. Uh, but again, it takes somebody who really understands the character. So th this is maybe, I mean, Probably maybe my favorite story of all the Superman Red Blue stories that we've had so far. I mean, I, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, so I can't say 100%, but I'm sure it's in my top two or three, uh, if not number one. But again, it goes to show that if you have a creator who understands the character really well, you can tell a good Superman story in a very limited amount of time with very little dialogue, actually. Um, and, and this, it just makes me wish that uh, instead of Philip Kenny Johnson, we had Robert Venditti writing Superman or action comics, I guess you'd say. I mean, I yet to see what Tom Taylor's going to do. We know it's going to be John Kent. So, um, you know, we'll see. Luckily, we do have Robert Venditti writing the, uh, what is it, Superman 78 series. That's sort of the, the continuation of the Superman the movie uh, starring Christopher Reeve. So I, I thought it was great. Plus, the artwork is really good, um, both in the flashback sequence where the, the art is a much uh, lighter palette with the red and the blue. It's uh, it's not real heavy as opposed to the the current or present day. The colors are a, a bit more strong. They're a bit more vibrant. But I feel like um, the color work here... It, they, they really leaned into it. Amelia Lopez really leaned into it and used the colors rather than sort of shying away from them or using a lot of white negative space or whatnot. He really leaned into using the, the red and the blue against each other. The blue is the shadow, the red as the, the light source, um, and like more so than, than a lot of other people did. That, that it almost like they shied away from using it. He leaned into it heavily, and I think it worked really, really well. So, yeah, by far my favorite story in the whole book. 
Yeah. Well, uh, you know, just like the, the, the Mark Wade story before had the, had the message of, uh, you know, go and try to reason with your enemies. Superman tries to reason with them. Mick says, Pitalik, uh, here, here, basically, the Superman remembers a message from his dad. You know, have faith in people, Clark. And if you ever find yourself starting to doubt them, be the example they need. And that's 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 what Superman does here. And there's that old expression, show, don't tell. And, you know, frankly, even without the dialogue here, you could get that. Superman shows by example here. He's he's holding out. He's holding up the bridge and people are doing their little bit. There's that old, uh, very, very depressing expression, death by a thousand cuts. But there's also life by a thousand bits of help. You know, I mean, little bits of help here and there, you know, uh, you know, all those people helping Superman prop up the uh, prop up the bridge, you know, you know, taking their time. It takes a long time for them to get all the pieces of steel to hold them up there, to push them up there. Each human trying to help this Kryptonian. Uh, but, you know, they slowly do it and they all come together and they help. And it's a nice message. And if you it's all in the artwork, the beautiful artwork, which you beautifully uh, described. And yeah, it works. It, it, it works. And uh, again, you know. Uh, uh, curiously enough, I, I did enjoy this story, but my favorite story is, in fact, the last one, uh, which well, there's, oh, I'm two, sorry. there's two left. There's two left. So it's not this. It's yeah. not this next one, which is I'm not even sure what this next one is. But uh, yeah, another bizarro story. Is. Yeah. Another bizarro story that I didn't I really didn't understand. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, basically, he thinks everybody's making fun of him. Everybody being members of the Justice League yeah. are making fun of him. And then at the end, as he busts out of his fortress of multitude, Superman is there to give him a cupcake um, and wish him a happy birthday. <sighs> and, and apparently the whole the whole time, everything he was seeing, was, it was all a manipulation, a mirage by uh, Mixius Pitalik. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't know, Rocky. I really don't know. Yeah, I, uh, I was confused by it, and yeah, yeah. I, I I'm not um, uh, straight up. I've I guess it's just me. I've never been a Bizarro fan, to be honest. Same. Yeah, I've I, I've never I've never really been a big fan. Uh, I always think that you know he's sort of a product of the Silver Age. That I'm all for updating characters from the Silver Age, I guess, but I. That was one I, you could probably leave behind. But although I do like Bizarro in the the uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws, you know, when with 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 sort of a more intelligent Bizarro with, yep. with Artemis and Red Hood, I thought that was pretty cool. I actually like that. I'm not really into this whole you know Bizarro having a square planet and having his own world and everything is opposite. It just gets into kind of tropey nonsense after a while. But yeah, I don't. I don't really get this. Uh, I, uh, you know, I guess it has for the man who has nothing interesting, you know, written by Michael W. Conrad. Uh, Michael W. Conrad is uh, co-writing uh, Wonder Woman with uh, Becky Cloonan. And I think, think they did a reasonably good job with Wonder Woman. I, you know, I, for, for the man who has nothing, that the title I think is a play on for the man who has everything, which is a very famous uh, uh, Dave Gibbons uh, or Alan Moore story, uh, uh, illustrated by Dave Gibbons, and uh, where deal, dealing with the Black Mercy, where uh, where Superman 
you know, is, is infected with this plant that makes him imagine himself having a better life where, when Krypton didn't explode. And so if this title is a play on that for the man who has nothing, uh, does Bizarro think he has nothing? And I think maybe that's what Bizarro is thinking, that maybe he doesn't have anything, but Superman is letting him know with a cupcake that apparently that's not true. I, I don't really know. Yeah, that. yeah, again, <laughs> yeah, again, I think, you know, I say, what the heck is this? But I mean, yeah, it, this is another one of those, okay, so Superman is the symbol of hope. And even if you think you have nothing and no one cares about you, Superman cares. Um, but it's just, I mean, it's so long winded to get there, you know, <laughs> that it, it was a ch little bit of a chore. Um, so yeah. Anyway, well, but, this uh, final but, story, but is, yeah, the, the last favorite. one by, by Rich Duick with Joe Kenyonis art, Dave Sharp on letters, uh, apparently was your, your favorite, right? Well, yeah. The reason why this is my favorite is that I actually think that this is a very timely story and I, I can see yeah, a kid true. kids being stupid enough in, in our world to, to j deliberately jump off buildings uh, to get Superman's attention and then take a selfie of it, uh, confident that Superman will catch them. And of course, Superman will because Superman is Superman. And and it's it starts a very, very dangerous trend here where other kids start to do it. And this kid is an idiot. And he's just, you know, he's an egomaniac. He's a, he's a YouTuber. And I think he's sort of like, I don't think this kid is intends to be as necessarily as egocentric or as driven for attention as maybe he's initially portrayed to be. But, but what really stands out here is, is the way Superman handles this kid. And that's what really impressed me about it, where Superman's character stood out, uh, the art here is, uh, is, is very well done. While Superman is battling the real villains and protecting people from the likes of Solomon Grundy and from Lex Luthor and, and what have you. Uh, sorry. Um, it ends up that uh, th this kid keeps distracting him. And, he, and, he, and finally, he's got he's to take this kid and say, look, man, uh, you know, I, I can't. He says there are 11 million people down there every day. I do my best to save each and every one that, that, that needs me to. And, you know, he's basically just asking the kid, like, you know, please don't do this. <laughs> you know, don't do this. <laughs> and uh, it ends with him taking a selfie with, with, a, with a young kid on the street. So Superman, like Superman is saying, look, uh, instead of me wasting my time saving you, when, when you're deliberately putting yourself in harm's way, I could be saving other people. And, uh, and, uh, and he just, he just, it's Superman is just using conversation and he's asking and he's being kind. Whereas he could be angry. He could, uh, you know, Batman would, 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 would be treated very differently. If it was, a, it was if it was another type of uh, hero or anti-hero, I mean, that kid probably, uh, you know, let a couple kids fall to their death and that would be the end of that trend. But that's not Superman. And anyways, I just really like this. I really loved it. I love the ending. I love that final panel. <laughs> Superman just being somebody who the people in Metropolis love him, but sometimes that means they take advantage of him. And uh, and this kid decides, I think it's fair to say he can. He decides not to. And it ends with a beautiful selfie. And I don't know, I, I just sort of tugged at the heart a little bit. It's It really felt like Superman to me a little bit more than the rest of the story, other stories did. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's all too real. You know, hashtag Superman challenge. You could totally see people doing this because it's not just the first guy that does it. You know, then he's got a bunch of copycats, Fly Guy Fry and Bonnie Riz and, and whatnot. And um, yeah, Superman has better better things to do. And it's all uh, it's all portrayed very well in the artwork by Joe Quinone. As you can see, when he, Superman has to take the time to go rescue these other fools, uh, you know, and take time out from from fighting the Atomic Skull and Brainiac and um, Lex Luthor and whatever. Whenever they're taking selfies with him, he's got this look on his face like yeah. he's not happy that he's having to do that. As opposed to when he takes the picture at the end with the little girl that, you know, just comes up and asks for a selfie, um, you know, he's got a big smile on his face. So, yeah, it, it, it this is a, one of the better stories. Uh, and, of course, Joe Quinones is a, a fantastic artist. So, uh, yeah, that uh, that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, so that does it. The only other DC book that comes out this week is uh, Scooby-Doo. So we, we basically covered everything uh, this week, unlike some other weeks where we had to, to skip this or that. Uh, so that's uh, that's it for the books this week. Um, everything Catwoman stood out. Nightwing was very good. Uh, Static, very good. Supergirl, very good. Uh, yeah, I think overall, really strong week. Uh, anything you got coming up this week, Rocky, that you want to plug before we call it good? Uh, not not particular. I, I might do I might do a top twenty of just some of my back issues, my DC back issues. But beyond that, I might. Uh... Uh, I might do a little bit of introspection on Wonder Woman, but I got nothing very specific. No, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just taking it easy, enjoying the summer. But uh, I know you, you, you've been busy. You got a lot on the go lately, haven't you? Oh, my God. I've been so busy. Uh, being out of town for the day job last week really threw me uh, trying to get caught up. So we've got, uh, I, I owe everybody a couple of uh, Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters episodes that should be dropping this week. I also have an interview with Tim Seeley about Dark Red, his uh, animosity series that had a couple of arcs, a couple of volumes. Uh, And he he talks about his other current work that's coming out. So that's uh, that should be out. uh, Actually, should be out by the time you hear this. It should have dropped uh, the day before. Uh, So that's coming as well. And then uh, there should be um, another interview with a bad idea creator coming for you all. Uh, That should be really fun. Uh, As you know, if you follow social media, bad idea is coming to an end. So they have what's known as the final five, final five bad idea issues. You got to order them, pre-order them blind on the 16th to get a special <laughs> sticker. What the sticker's for, much like the buttons, we don't know, but apparently you'll want it. And then on the following day, on the 17th, I think they're announcing what those final five titles are. So uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so that's coming down the, the pipe as well. We also should uh, be getting that DC Pride spotlight out for you guys this week. Uh, at some point, Far Sector, as I mentioned, should be coming um, as I'm looking at my list here. Uh, and I, I think that's all I can announce for now. But we do have some other really big things we're working on. It's just like I said, being out of town last week, I got a lot of stuff to catch up on this week. Uh, in fact, I don't even have a Kickstarter spotlight this week. I don't. As of now, when we're recording this, I don't. Whether or not I get one in the next couple of days and can record it uh, is another question. So I guess we'll wait and see. But there's tons of great Kickstarters going on right now. Game of Doubles, which we spotlighted last week, um, is uh, is one that I'll call out uh, in particular. Uh, but there's tons of great uh, crowdfunding uh, uh, campaigns going on right now. Slow City Blues over at the the new um, sort of concierge crowdfunding site, zoop.gg, is also very much worth your time. Really encourage you to go over and check that out. Listen to my interview with zoop.gg. 
uh, CEO, Jordan Plosky. Uh, also go and, and check out the uh, episode I did with the creative team for Slow City Blues, which is a, a fantastic sounding series. And I did get to read the first issue. It's very much worth your time. So uh, tons of content coming out as always. We're hoping to get the X-Men uh, episodes started back up. I know people have been asking for those. Just a matter of having enough time. Uh, and of course, got to work that day job and pay the bills. So yeah. I do. Uh, I, I should say that next week for DC is going to be quite big. Uh, check Checkmate number one is coming out. Uh, and as well as Infinite Frontier number one, and the premiere issue of Wonder Woman Black and Gold, and uh, it's going to be a huge week. Teen Titans Academy four, Harley Quinn four, Action Comics one thousand thirty two, third issue of Robin, Mister Miracle, The Source of Freedom number two, Superman thirty two, Justice League sixty, it's Batman Reptilian number one, all coming out next week. Uh. So wow, it's it's going to be a huge DC week next week, uh, Jay. So we're we're definitely going to that might yeah, be a three got, hour podcast. Yeah, yeah, we got the next issue of Wonder Woman, which starts a new arc, and yeah, yeah. yeah it's going to be yeah that Batman yes. reptilian. We're going to have to spend quite a bit of time on. So oh, man. yeah, going to be a big going to be a big one, everybody. So uh, make sure you're ready. Uh, in the meantime, make sure you uh, you've subscribed to Rocky's Comic Boom YouTube channel. Uh, hit that like button. Make sure you click the notification bell so you know when he's got new content up. Uh, if you're uh, listening on uh, just the, the audio, be sure you go over to YouTube and check it out. Uh, conversely, if you are just watching us on YouTube, make sure you go to whatever your favorite podcast platform is and subscribe to the Comic Source uh, because we do tons of episodes, almost one a day. Um, Sometimes, well, at our peak, we were more than one a day. I'd like to get back there to doing 10 episodes a week, but uh, just struggling to find the time. Uh, but we appreciate uh, your support, however often you watch or join us. Uh, we always appreciate the comments and reaching out on social media to let us know what you think. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Really appreciate you watching or listening, as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.